Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Kyle Bergman is the founder and director of ADFF, the Architecture and Design Film Festival, which is the world's largest film festival devoted to the creative spirit of architecture and design. With a curated selection of films, events, panel discussions in cities like New York, Los Angeles, Toronto, Washington DC, Vancouver, and online, ADFF creates an opportunity to entertain, engage, and educate everyone who are excited about architecture and design. In this interview, Kyle talks about architecture as storytelling, the striking resemblance between the art of making film and the art of making architecture. We talk about how important it is to use the film medium to expand the conversation about the role of architecture and design today. We discuss knowledge of design, a separate kind of knowledge that tells us when something is well-designed or not. And this fall's major event when ADFF and MoMA will showcase a documentary about the genius of Bruce Mao. Kyle also gives us some great recommendations of films we must watch and reflects on the fact that the films that make it to the festival often has an emotional and engaging human dimension in them. Kyle Bergman, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be at the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be doing this face-to-face. I've heard a lot about you and obviously I've read a lot about you. And as a Swede, I have to ask you a question. Are you related to the Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman. God, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> I cannot say yes. Although, by having a connection just with the name, yeah. it feels a little connected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, maybe you are related in spirit. I certainly love film. I think that we had that in common. Yes. Um, so, Kyle, you are the founder and director of the uh, Architecture and Design Film Festival. What is this festival, really? What, what is it about? It started at this idea, I'm an architect, and as architects, we talk to each other all the time, we have great conversations. But what we, as a group, kind of suck at is expanding that conversation to a wider audience. And I think it's really important for the profession to expand that dialogue. Especially in America and other countries, the, I think the design dialogue is much broader than just the design community. No. Uh, you look at Denmark, you look at Holland, really great design IQ across the board, uh, and Sweden, and, uh, and in the States, not so high across the board. And so the idea of the festival was to bring films together that both have a human story and a design story, and bring the design world and the design world, non-design world together to uh, watch films and talk in, and have conversations afterwards. So it's more than just showing films. If it's just showing films, it's kind of like a film series. But the festival part of it makes it a place to come together and engage in that dialogue. And that's actually as important as seeing the films. So how did it start? Was it that you, f- you got this epiphany one day when you woke up and you said, now I'm going to start a film festival? Or, or did it come in different, uh, different steps? In about 2000, I had a publishing company. And I had been thinking about what the next steps were. We were thinking about selling that soon. And I love film. I'm a visual learner, not necessarily a reader, and I love film. And started thinking about it, and I really was digesting it for seven or eight years, mm-hmm. and just kind of tumbling around. Are there enough films? What is this? How do you do a film festival? And finally, it was uh, 2008, and it was time to be. It was either like, either do it or forget about it. 
and, uh, and then the economy kind of crapped out. And so I was like, oh no. So I went up in 2009, we did our first version of the festival in Vermont, in a small town. And they had two theaters. We tracked like a thousand people from all over Boston and New England and Montreal. And it was, turned out to be a blessing that it didn't, wasn't, I didn't start in New York the first year under the bright lights of New York. I got, was able to work out some of the kinks of it up in Vermont. And uh, so that was the, the genesis of the whole thing. Hmm. So architecture and design, why is that important, uh, the two of them? Why couldn't be only architecture or only design? How, how do you look at, the, at these two together or separate? So, so the architect part comes because I'm an architect and it's really my driving focus and interest. But design is also just as important, and it, it allows it to be as broad as possible. We have films on graphic design and product design and anything connected design, urban design. And so design allows it to be open to everything. So we kind of stay away from art, which is an interesting topic also, mm -hmm. but we keep more towards design. Mm, I see. So where is your heart then? My heart is in architecture, so it, it skews a little bit more architecture than, than design. But the design part is just as important. And really, the world makes us go into little silos, like acad academia does that, and the other parts of the world makes it break up into these different, you're a landscape architect or a structural engineer or a graphic designer. Yeah. And it's the creative process of design uh, crosses all those boundaries, and that's the kind of more interesting part. Yeah. So when you look back uh, to when you started the, the film festival, how, how has it changed over the years? There are more and more films being made about architecture and design. Actually, there's more and more documentaries. When we first started, I never talked about the word documentaries because it had not a dirty word, but it was like a boring word in a lot of, in a, in a lot of uh, communities, and so we never, ever used the word documentaries. Now it's less like, now it's the hip word. Now we're kind of like right in the sweet spot. Uh, and so I think this idea of seeing documentaries has become more popular at the moment. I also think though that there's been a democratization of filmmaking over the last 15 or 20 years with the price of equipment coming down and the editing equipment coming down. There's a huge time effort into uh, making films. You can do films now with equipment that's available to everybody. And so I think it makes it a much more wider for people to get into it. Yeah. And we see a lot more films. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily make better films because it's wider, but certainly uh, there are people, there are, we've had films made by people with, uh, done it with no money, made fantastic films. And you know, and people, there's, there's a great opportunity there for people who are good storytellers. And the quality of the iPhone is, is, is a phenomenal camera. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of that democratization of, of, you know, yes, you can have beautiful cameras and they can do a, a special things, but you can, the iPhone is a pretty powerful tech camera. So in the film festivals, are the different categories from that point of view? I mean, you know, very low budget or medium budget or big budgets. No, we, we don't break it up that way. We, <laughs> we uh, you know, we just, it's either a good film or not a good film. And we don't do any awards. Like there's always this push to do awards. And I think in small festivals, the awards make it too competitive. There's enough competition in the world out there. Yeah. We basically think if you get into the festival, you're, that's a winner. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like I always think, think like the Olympics. We should go. We should do away with the gold, the gold, bronze, and silver, and count up how many. You know, either maybe you get it. Maybe you get a gold award if you break a world record or something like that. But this idea of making it so nationalistic and by counting the awards, 
I think it, it, it takes some of the uh, joy out of it. Yeah. Isn't there also a, um, an exponential growth in ways of showing documentaries that before you had the distribution aspect of it, now you can stream it on numbers of platforms? Uh, I think that helps get, get it out there, mm -hmm. but I think um, being able to see everything everywhere is also a challenge. So in a sense what we're doing is we're curating uh, because we, are, we look at 350 or so more films a year mm -hmm. and we're taking that down to 15 to 20 films. Mm -hmm. And so it allows you to come to, that, to come to the festival either on our digital platform or at the festival and say, okay, well these have been Maybe we don't like them or not like them, but they've been curated in a certain way. Uh, and so I think that that's helpful. It's kind of like, you know, you live in New York, you go to a lot of restaurants all the time, and some of them are crappy and some of them are good. And, some, you know, and then when your friends come into town, you only take them to the good ones. So you've curated all those crappy restaurants out of the way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. How do you choose uh, the films? I guess you have to take into consideration a number of different factors. Is it a committee or are you the, the are you Putin here? And uh, I'm uh, not Putin. Uh, <laughs> I don't ever want to be Putin. I look at them all as they come in and then we have a committee of people that review the ones that make it to that pass that first cut. What we're looking at, our sweet spot, is films that have both a design story and a human story. And I came to that kind of idea so in 2003, there was a film called My Architect mm -hmm. by Nathaniel Kahn, and it was nominated for an uh, Oscar in a documentary. And so as architects and designers, we, looked, we liked it because it was a story of Lou Kahn. And it was just like, oh my God, this is a crazy story. But the bigger audience looked at it, and it was a son's search for his father. It didn't matter if you knew anything or cared anything about architecture or Lou Kahn. It was, a, it was an engaging story about you know, this kind of tragic and wonderful like opportunity this kid had, Nathaniel Kahn. And so that was, so I realized that that's the sweet spot. We want to find films that have a design story and a human story. So when we're programming, that, that's really important for us. There are a lot of films that come in that have an interesting content, but it doesn't, it's, it's a little boring in that perspective, and maybe that's better for like the AIA to show or something that's just focused purely on architects or something that's more narrowly defined, but we're looking for broader films. I see. So it's not a question of balancing the, the, the artsy stuff and the commercial stuff, just to make one uh, distinction there, but it's more like the, the human story that helps communicate uh, the message of, of the movie. That's our, that's our sweet spot. Yeah. You know, and also when you do a festival, it's like, it's like throwing a dinner party. I mean, you want to have a little spicy, some sweet stuff, something vegetarian, something like, you know, just greasy and you know so you want a little bit of something for everyone in an ideal festival and it doesn't always work out that way but sometimes you know we get certain or sometimes like we'll get a certain year where we get three or four films on brutalism and this is a show three or four in the same festival might not make sense yeah. so they kind of get uh, so that you, you make some selection process based on that as well I see and, and also the our, our audience is diverse and you know, some people gravitate towards certain films and other, you know, gravitate towards other films. And I, I don't think everyone's going to love every film in the festival, which is okay. They don't, they don't, it's not necessarily the goal. Yeah. We don't select films necessarily because we think people, because they're going to have a wide audience. I mean, some films we know, you know, you have a film about Zaha Hadid or it's a name recognition people, those have more people that are attracted to them. But sometimes we pick films, we select films that are just really, really good and we know that they're not going to be the broadest audience, mm -hmm. but we select them because they're the right film for the festival. Yeah. 
So when you pick films for your festivals, what about the young filmmaker? Are you making an exception for them or are you having a, a supportive activities or are they competing on the same level as everybody else? You know, I think they are. We don't, we don't have a student competition level. We just want the films to be of a certain quality. And it doesn't, you know, some of our films are not the same technical quality. They're not always this. You can see some of them are made with no money, hmm. so we're not worried about it having to be a great, um, so well produced that people can't get involved. Or we have films sent in from countries all over the world with less resources. So it's not. So I don't think that that's the barrier to entry. Uh, but I don't have a, a student competition, a master's competition. A, you know, it's a. Uh, and we, you know, when I first started, I was a little worried if we were going to get enough good films every year. And it's so far. We've always had enough good films uh, each year, but it's always been like every, every year I think, okay, is this the year we don't get any good films? And, when, and then what do we do? We do a retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you said, so, so the, the number has increased every year. All the cool kids now are doing documentaries before they weren't, yeah. <laughs> exactly. so, so it's great for us. Um, so there's a submission process people submit from all over the world, but we also keep track. And so, uh, you know, at this point we know, people know us, we hear that films are being made on certain things, and we're always like, is that done yet? How's that going? We'd love to see it. And so, uh, so there's people tracking with the festival, and we track with filmmakers as they're in the process, because you know, it takes anywhere from, I mean, two years to 12 years to make these films. I mean, people put so much time and effort into them. Oh. You know, so they're, they're not, like, they don't just like, get spit out like a, like a newspaper article. For our listeners then, uh, let's go and see, let's talk about your program for 2021 and 22. So it's a dicey year to be doing any kind of live events. Um, and so things have been shifting and changing. Uh, and typically we do like a five, or we kick off the season with a five day event here in New York. And But this year is gonna be very different. We're gonna do, uh, start off with some single screenings in, um, in Toronto in November. Mm -hmm. uh, at TIFF, normally we do a festival up in Toronto, the TIFF Light Bell, but we're going to just do three nights, one film a night, and then we're going to move to Vancouver. And actually, the pen, uh, BC is doing really great with the pandemic, so we're going to do a full festival in Vancouver, mm -hmm. uh, which is very exciting. And and one of the reasons why we're pulled back on the festivals is I think people will come to the theaters. That's not the problem at this point, but in New York or in Toronto, we wouldn't have the bar and the cafe open. And, you know, we wouldn't be able to get as many people in the theaters. So it would just lose some of that energy and vibe. And so, like I was saying before, part of the festival is not just seeing the films, because now we know that we can see them at home, but we want to see them together. I think people come to a festival, film festival, to sit next to people, to enjoy it together. So, um, so we're going to be in Vancouver, and then we are do the uh, online festival for all of U.S. and Canada from November 17th to December 3rd. And that's an opportunity for, we'll have uh, 15 film programs and all with Q and A's that are pre-recorded. Um, and so people will be able to watch anytime, anywhere. And it's like, you know, and then we'll do, we'll bring the festival to DC in January mm -hmm. at the National Building Museum. Uh, and then we're gonna do a special little series of films in Cairo, Egypt at the end of January. Wow. Uh, we were invited to curate uh, some films for a new film festival that's happening there called Film My Design. And so we're going to bring six or seven films there and some speakers. And uh, it's a small festival, but it's, uh, but it's pretty fun. We've, we've done them before. Like we, we've done some in Bulgaria. We've done them in Mexico. We've done them in Colombia, Greece. So uh, 
sometimes we do the whole festival, sometimes we do parts of the festival elsewhere. That's interesting. So for some of the people who are listening to this, maybe they say, hey, why don't you do one in um, Denmark or Sweden or England? Would, would you be open to that? Sure, except Denmark, so we work closely with, there's a lot of different architectural design film festivals around the world, and we all know each other pretty well. So Copenhagen has a great one called the Copenhagen Architectural Foundation Festival. Uh, Rotterdam has a great one. Lisbon has a nice one. Uh, there was one in Lund mm -hmm. uh, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, so they, they, they creep up, but they pop up all over the world. Korea has one. And we all, we all know each other. It's a small world. So we would, I would never go to, like, Holland and do one. I would call my friend Jord and say, okay, there's one to do over, in, uh, you know, in Amsterdam. You should go do that. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you could do it from your perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you could. But there... Uh, we, we all and we all curate it differently truthfully you know each each of the festivals we all know each other and there's certain films that get picked up in a lot of the festivals and some of them like different curators yeah. like different films and are attracted to different films about New York? Unfortunately, the festival's not happening. There's going to be a couple screenings, November 17th, 18th, and 19th. Uh, we're going to do them uh, actually in Long Island City. As, as part of the series that we're going to do, as, you know, the week that we'll kick off the festival here in New York, we will have um, some screenings at a, a place called Eventscape. Uh, they have a great big venue in Long Island City. We'll show a couple nights of films there. And there will be drinks, cocktails, film, talk. Uh, little mini versions of like, of like what we like to do, mm -hmm. but really it's going to be focused on um, the online version of the festival that will happen everywhere. As much as we wanted to do the festival, it's just the pandemic rules this year, and we yeah. just got to follow the pandemic. And you know, we have sponsors who want to be involved, but they're everyone's a little nervous. I mean, I think we're going to get to the other side of this pandemic soon, yeah. but everyone's still nervous, and so you got to go slowly. We may add some more screenings that week, which is kind of when we're kicking off the online version of the festival, and everything will go to our website, uh, which is adfilmfest.com, and people can go there and keep track of that. Um, but we are already planning for 2022, and New York is really our kickoff of the festival. It's really our home base, and it's our biggest one. But we do it, and then we go to LA, we go to Toronto and Vancouver, and DC has been our, our recent kind of um, circuit. But we also program films for the uh, AIA's National Conference, wherever that is. Mm -hmm. We program films for them, and we program for other places as well. Um, sometimes we program films that don't play in the festival because someone is looking for a specific content or specific direction of, a, of some programming. In addition to this, though, you have uh, an event uh, together with MoMA and Bruce Mao. And Bruce Mao, yes. Yeah. So we are going to do, uh, so it's going to be a private screening at MoMA. One of the things we were originally going to do this year at the festival was do opening night at MoMA, uh, but it turned out that it was complicated with that because of COVID. But we are going to do a private screening and Bruce Mao is going to come in. So uh, there was a film that was made last year called Mao. And it actually was um, <clears throat> selected by the very prestigious South by Southwest Film Festival. Uh, but it only played there virtually. And then it played at another really great festival called Hot Docs, but also virtually. Mm -hmm. So this will be the first uh, in-person screening with Bruce Mao live, uh, in a theater. And uh, so Bruce and his wife, Busy Williams, who's his uh, wife and business partner, they're coming in from Chicago. 
and we're trying to get the two directors, they're both Austrian, coming in uh, from Vienna, but having issues with uh, travel from Europe. Uh, we'll see if that's gonna happen or not. And will, Paolo Antonelli will do a Q&A with uh, Bruce Mao and uh, Busy and the directors. And uh, it'll be, uh, uh, you know, it's nice to do things at MoMA. We've worked with MoMA before, and uh, it's always nice, but it's gonna be a small, and unfortunately not public, uh, by invitation only. I was just thinking, when, when can we buy tickets for this? <laughs> I wish I could sell tickets. I would love to sell tickets to that. Will it be online, though? No, uh, No, but we will uh, record the conversation that Bruce has with, with Bruce and Busy have with uh, Paolo Antonelli. I was curious about Bruce Mao because I have to confess that I didn't know of him at all. So I went to Amazon and I b bought this beautiful book, a light pinkish, uh, huge book from Fidon. And uh, it's very interesting. It uh, apparently contains 24 values for massive change in your in your life and in your work life and uh, I've just started to to plow through it it's uh, it's very well uh, designed I have to say uh, who is Bruce Mao so Bruce Mao is interesting because I you know when when the film came across I thought like okay everyone knows Bruce Mao turns out not everyone knows Bruce Mao <laughs> um, you know he is most famous I think in the architectural world for doing the book Small, Medium, Large, Extra Large about Rem Koolhaas. Mm -hmm. And not only was it a great book, but it was really kind of a, uh, a game changer in book design. You know, they did something completely different. Um, and he's done a number of great books since then. He actually has a new book on, um, uh, that he worked with on, with David Rockwell that just came out. And so he's known as a graphic designer, but he's also, um, you know, he's really a bigger thinker than that. After we selected the film and looking at this, I think what's, why he's not as well known is because he's not pigeonholed into certain things. He's not just a graphic designer. He's, you know, he did this great exhibit called Massive Change. He's done work with Mecca. Mecca hired him to um, rethink human traffic uh, for when people come to the Hajj, you know, about, you know, how, do, how does that flow? I mean, he's worked with um, the country of Guatemala, wanted to think about rebranding the country. Because mm -hmm. if you think Guatemala, is bad water. I mean, like, you know, and so, uh, and so he was, so he had this, it didn't get accepted, but he had this great thing, to, changing it to Guatemala, which is much more like, has love in there and is a, is a much different kind of way to yeah. think about it. So he works kind of on this big scale and his background is fascinating. He comes from a very rural mining town in central Canada, hmm. kind of like, you know, in American landscape, probably you find towns like that in West Virginia. Uh, had never did anything about design, didn't grow up with any design, anything. He had never, he, his first time was, he went to Toronto, which was only five hours away, was when he was going to college, and he'd never been there before. And he comes from this very undesigned kind of background and just launches into this, and he goes to school, and he starts doing it, and he realizes that school's not the way he learns, and he does these other things, and he becomes this driven, hardworking, really, design guru, and one of the things I love about Bruce Mao is he's very optimistic and, and, and very human and very positive. He's got this, he's got this um, sweet spot about people in the world, uh, and the film shows all that, that whole story. It's, it's, it's a fantastic film. It is the kind of film that's gonna get a theatrical, not, not, not all our films get a theatrical release, mm -hmm. but I imagine this film at some point will get a theatrical release, yeah. which means it's gonna get to a broader audience. Yeah. I, I think it's really a positive film it's not, poly I mean, he's not Pollyanna, although some people think of it as that. I think, I think it, Bruce is very realistic, 
but also optimistic. Uh, next year then, 2022, what can we say about that? What can we look forward to? So next year we'll be back in Chelsea, at our typical theater. Uh, where, where are you normally? We're normally at Chelsea, at Sinopolis on 23rd and 8th Avenue. Mm -hmm. And typically we do opening night at SVA Theater, which is also there, but you know, it depends on the year and the venue. Um, and we'll be back for a full selection of New York, LA, all, I mean, we're assuming pandemic willing, everything's pandemic willing, but you know, back for a full on festival. And I think also this spring and summer, we'll do some one-off screenings. We'll do some outdoor screenings. We've, we've become very good at now doing kind of uh, non-traditional screenings and also the screenings online. And I think, you know, there's, there's pros and cons with our pivot that we did last year to online. Mm -hmm. Turns out that we ended up with, normally we get about 22 to 24,000 people coming to see films throughout the course of the year. And when we pivoted to online, it was that same number roughly, but spread out across the country and Canada. So the, you know, we never really wanted to go online with the festival because it's more fun to be in person, but the opportunity was so many more people who could get to see the films. And so going forward in the future, we'll always do both of those mm -hmm. options for everyone. So when we talk about architecture, you mentioned you're an architect, and uh, but are you still uh, working as an architect? Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't practice that much here in the States. I do, I do run a program where we do parks around the Pacific, but the festival, I thought it was just gonna be a fun thing when I first started it, but it has consumed me. Maybe your, <laughs> maybe your podcast is like that, where you think, oh, this will be fun, and then all of a sudden you're spending all your time on it. Exactly. <laughs> so, but, so I'm not actually practicing architecture at the moment. Okay. But still licensed and still. So in talking about architecture, so, so what do you like, uh, now this is of course sensitive questions here because you must uh, be impartial to all the various uh, aspects of architecture, but if I can ask you, so what is your personal favorite Are you uh, of these isms? Uh, are you, are you? Uh... So, so I, I try to stay away from isms because they're so, <laughs> they're so, they're so fraught with problems or favorites, but you know, you know, what I, what I really think is good design, like you can tell when something's good. And I can enjoy good modernism, and I can enjoy, I'm not post-modernism, I'm not quite sure I can enjoy that yet. But uh, I can enjoy good class, I mean like, you know, you, you go, you, when you're in something that's well designed, even if it's not your thing, you can just feel that the, the quality of design in a place, and, and so that's important. And so you see it in churches, you see it in old buildings and new buildings, you walk in and like you, or you, you know, you feel it. Like, you know, you go into, or, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm crazy about a lot of Corbusier stuff, but you go into Ronchamp and like, that's just like one powerful piece of architecture that just kind of stops you, mm -hmm. you know, from seeing it from the outside and going inside of it. So it is the, it is the, the power of good design, I think. Uh, you know, actually we have a film a new film about a Danish architect, Dorta Malthart. Um, and she, her, her title of her film is called Another Kind of Knowledge. And she talks about this, which is interesting. Like, you know, like there's this design knowledge that you have, and it's, it's not like reading or writing, but there's this, like, you understand when something's well-designed, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and especially architecture, because we all feel it. And I, I think we all, I think people understand architecture, humans understand architecture, they can't always articulate it if they're not necessarily trained about it, but we all kind of get it. You know, you just kind of know when something's well designed. If you're if you're thinking about it just a little bit, you just you just know it. So that's what that's what's important to me. If you look at like look at Saarinen, he's such a great architect, but there's no Saarinen style, and I th I think it's why he wasn't 
it took a, like he's not as well known as he should be. Yeah. You know, even though his buildings, they're not that many, I mean, but they're, each one is, and, and Khan too, even though Khan had this modernist, you know, the buildings were all slightly different, although Khan was a little bit more similar. But I think, you know, there's this, uh, and even Frank Lloyd Wright, I mean, he had periods of certain styles, mm-hmm. but, but the Guggenheim is nothing like Unity Temple, you know, or, or Beth Shalom Synagogue, or, you know, or the Marin County Courthouse, you know, they're all different. You know, they're not a specific style. Same question applied to design, then. Never been one for favorites. I don't have a favorite food or favorite mm. design. But you, like, you know, you feel like when you're eating and you pick up silverware that's well designed, mm. you just kind of feel it. It just feels right. You know it's good and it, and it kind of relates. And it, so I don't, I'm not, you know, there are other people who are very dogmatic, like, I like this. I like pink. I like, you know, this. Yeah. I, I don't have that kind Dita of sense. Yeah, Dieter Rams. I like Dieter Rams, and, and those people. And actually, it it makes me a good curator for the festival. Yeah. Because I don't have like there are festivals that are like, you know, uh, specifically re- related to a very specific topic, and like so it serves me well for this because I like yeah, like I kind of like them all. Like I like yeah. I, I like you know, I, I, there's a, we had a film last year about old Russian churches, mm-hmm. you know, and they were uh, they were just amazing buildings and just like these old wooden churches in northern Russia uh, and just phenomenal, you know, so um, I'm a bad one for favorites. <laughs> that makes you a good curator because you don't have, you're not biased. You go on uh, your feelings and uh, your instinct, I guess, which is, which is a good thing, right? It, it is, I think for that, and I've, I've watched a lot of films mm-hmm. and, I, and I stay with, like when we preview the films, we preview them all, like beginning to end, you gotta stay with them and you gotta watch them Like you can't preview on your laptop, you gotta project it and see it big because there's something powerful about seeing the film, the whole thing, and really sitting and watching it. It actually takes, for if you programmers who program festivals, uh, it takes a fair amount of energy and concentration because it's not casual watching, it's really kind of, and you know, when we select a film, I've probably seen it two or three times or more before we make final decisions on which one because, um, and then a lot of films too that, that people think they should be in the festival because they're about a certain well-known designer or architect. Uh, there was one on the Lucan building, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the f- filmmaker was very upset with me. How could you not show a film about this building? <laughs> and, 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 and you know, and it was a pretty good film, but it was there was some problems with it, and so you know, we we didn't we don't we don't select those. You know, it's got it's got it's got to be some payoff at the end of the film. It's like a book too, or like a story. Yeah. There's got to like you know, we had a film on Lino Bao, the uh, the Argentinian. A modernist architect, and it was a pretty interesting film on her. But at the end of the day, it never—he sh- never saw her work, or you know, it was just people talking about how good her work was, but you didn't actually see it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was all beautiful words, but there was like—it was like you left you like kind of like, oh god, okay. There was no payoff. You gotta have a payoff. comes to your um, your festivals? It's about a 50-50 mix of design professionals, just in the general category, architects, graphic designers, teachers, and then non-professionals, people, doctors and lawyers and mm-hmm. bankers and, and, you know, and people who are interested in architecture and design or, or film, you know, are interested. So we have this, and it's always somewhere between a 60-40 split, but, it's, you know, it's just really been consistent, a wide variety of people. And I would say there are a lot of people, design professionals, 
who at the, at the end of the day, the last thing they want to do is go see a film on architecture or design. They want to go play golf or do something else. And, you know, and it's, a big, it's a big world and a big profession. So what do you do during the spring? Of course you plan for the fall, but uh, also you have some uh, time when you go exploring, I, I assume. Sure, I go travel and exploring, but you know, the spring is the time we raise money for the festival mm -hmm. because it's all done by corporate sponsorship. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what pays for the festival. Ticket sales really don't really make a f festival work. And so they're making their planning decisions uh, for the fall, usually in, the, in Q1 and Q2. So those are kind of like our time where we're out trying to raise money for the next festival. Mm -hmm. uh, and then like the third and fourth quarter are really more like, you know, so there's three things with doing a festival. There's part of it is raising money. Yeah. Part of it is curation, cultural, I mean, kind of programming. And part of it is throwing a party. And so that has these three different legs of it. And yeah. so in each part of it, there's this kind of first, you gotta raise the money, then you gotta kind of curate it, and then you gotta throw parties. You know, people who run festivals in Europe it's almost all government supported. Yeah. And so they, they don't have this issue at all. They're just kind of like, you know, like, they're like, oh my God, you got to raise all the money. <laughs> so it's, it's a different, and they cannot believe that American, that American, like, that, that the uh, government doesn't really support the arts. And it, it really doesn't. <laughs> no. I like what you said in an interview here about architects um, tend to forget that what they're doing is storytelling. Um, I interviewed Marcus Fares, uh, the, the founder of Dezine, and he said that yeah, architects has a tendency of being very academic when they talk about their work. And uh, what made Dezine so uh, successful, he mentioned, was that they only show the photos, the sort of the, the beautiful photos of the building, which yeah. people find very attractive and communicate directly. And, I guess that is one reason why you're doing this festival is to to develop that storytelling uh, competence really and, and to spread the spread the. So, what do you think of the architecture in in New York? So I grew up here. So it's a, I would say architecture in New York had a lot of really poor years. I would say from the mid '60s up until 2000, and I think there's a big difference. 2001. I actually think. Uh, the 9-11 competition engaged New York architecture and it engaged the city in architecture in a way that it hadn't been engaged in a long time before that. And since then, you see, I would say, much more passion and much more interest in, in architecture in New York. I mean, the High Line, the stuff around the High Line, whether you like the buildings or not, there's a design passion. And I think developers realize that design is important. And so, and there was a lot of people early on, like I would say Gensler and Frank Gehry, who said, no, we can work with developers, they're not evil, uh, you know, we have to get what we want out of it. And so, and I think New York went through a real renaissance after the discussions about what should happen at Ground Zero after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in buildings large and small throughout New York. And I think New York since then has become a much better design, uh, for, or, or much better buildings have been built since then for the, I would say for the 30 years before that, since probably like the beginning of tearing down, you know, Penn Station and that whole yeah. bit. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Maybe that's a theme for a documentary. I think it is. I've tried to pitch some people. That's a, it's a really great documentary. There's a great, there's a great story there because it, it was that, it was the civic engagement, I think. Uh -huh. You know, I think there, there's a couple things. I do think it's because architects feel like it's okay. It's not bad to work with developers. Uh -huh. And, and I think, architecture understanding storytelling. If you look at the really 
what, what I think are some of the better architectural firms right now. Like I think big, uh, Bjarke Engels Group, they're fantastic storytellers, and Bjarke is a great storyteller, and obviously a lot of people, it's not just him designing, and it's a very large organization, but they are doing a great job of telling stories with their buildings. And I think uh, Heatherwick is doing, you know, studio is doing great stuff, and Jeannie Gang is, you know, you know there's, a, there's a sense of, um, I mean, architecture is storytelling. I mean, it's one of the commonalities with film, and I think that uh, you are telling a story by your choice of materials, by how you, how you engage with the street, how you engage people. Those are all part of the storytelling quality. And, and if you look at Frank Lloyd Wright, master storyteller, and his, his buildings are fantastic because you know, he was leading you through, telling you a story from, be, from the time you saw the building until the time you walked away from it. So what do you think about Hudson Yards? I think it is fraught with problems. I, uh, you know, I think the shed's a really interesting building. I like the shed as a building. It doesn't feel as urban, I mean, even though it's in the middle of a big city, it feels a little too walled off for me. Uh, it feels a little too monolithic as far as um, um, economically. Uh, but I think over the course of time, it will grow in. The city, the city is bigger, I think, than the development. And um, the Time Warner building, I wasn't sure it was going to work in the beginning. I thought it was just going to be a big mall that no one used. It turns out to be pretty successful and works well. Mm -hmm. I think Battery Park City, when it was first done, mm -hmm. felt a little isolated and didn't work, but the city grew into it, and now it's become a great place to live. Yeah. So I think it's going to take time. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just a, it didn't develop the way a city should develop, which is slowly and piecemeal and gradually. It just was a little bit too big a chunk of real estate that got just like it felt like it just landed in, yeah. and it's landing in right now and still landing in. Um, in 20 years, I think it will soften up a little bit and be more integrated into the city, and it will be better at that point. I agree with you. I mean, even the, the Eiffel Tower was a big disgrace when they built it, right? And, and now everybody yeah. loves it. It's like an icon for the city. Exactly. Well, the, Gug the Guggenheim was not loved when it was first made. No. And, you know, I actually think the Calatrava building, people in 20 years are going to love that building, even though a lot of people... Uh, you know, the, the downtown station, there's a lot of yeah. pushback against it. But I think that's going to become an iconic building. But it's going to need one more generation. I think so, too. It's a little um, barren inside, right? It's a right. little yeah. empty. It's, it's a fantastic. I mean, the first time I, I went in there, I lost my breath when I was looking at that incredible. Me, too. Me, too. Yeah. I think so. And I even think on the skylight. I mean, I like it's coming down the street. Yeah. You know, it's a little tight against some of the buildings in it there. It is. It is. Uh, you know, but... I don't know. I think it's a, yeah. you know. There is something inside. When you're inside, the, the light and the, you look up, there's something, I don't know. It's I, like I, a cathedral. It has a cathedral quality to it. There's yeah. something, you know, it's a cathedral to public transportation. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a shopping, but it's, yeah. there's, there's cathedral quality to it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times in, in New York. A lot of things are happening here. And, and I think what uh, happens, there's pushback. Change is tough. Yeah. And then as soon as it happens, then, you know, you look at bicycling in, in Copenhagen. It wasn't always, it wasn't always a bicycle city, but they started it like in the 70s. Yeah. You know, and it took a while for that to catch on to be like, oh yeah, that's the way to do things. Yeah. And here now it's catching on here and having the bike lanes. And I think, you know, I, I bike all, I, I, like I use all transportation. I have a car, I bike, I subway, I like, you know, walk, I do them all. Uh, I think, I think the next step for the biking in New York is the, we have to make the bikers abide by the biking rules. Mm -hmm. And I think it will make it a better bike, biking city and make it a better city for all the other, you know, right now it's kind of like bike crazy out there, yeah. you know. <laughs> you go down Broadway and guys coming straight at you. Yeah, yeah. 
That's interesting, the, the, the storytelling part of it, uh, like that. Well, well, there's so many things that are similar between filmmaking and architecture. I mean, if you think about it, there's really a lot of similarities. I mean, they're both storytelling. They're both public. They're both this balance of art and science. They're both collaborative processes. You know, that you, you know, none of, you know, even though you have a name, big, Bjarke Ingels, it's, there's, a, there's a, you know, 100 people working on a project, you know, or, or a film. It's not just Ingmar Bergman making the film, but like, you know, and, and architects and I say directors are both generalists. And so they have to like command this whole team of people to make these projects happen. So, so there's all these similarities between the two. And especially storytelling. I think that's the most important. But have you thought about being a filmmaker? Have you? Uh... Yeah, of course. I think about it all the time yeah. in the last 20 years. <laughs> so is that the next step? You know, I don't know. I, I've, uh, I, I have projects in my mind of films I'd like to make and things, you know, things I'd like to do or things I'd like to see make. Yeah. Uh, I look at so many films and I look at architecture. It seems like a natural uh, outgrowth to make a film. I'd like to do a film on gentrification. Uh -huh. I, I think gentrification, there's a great film to be made on, and if someone out there is listening, you could just make it, save me the time and energy. Uh, uh, but there's, there's, it happens in cities, it happens in suburbs, and it happens in rural areas. And it's the same, there's some similarities how they happen, they just happen at different speeds, different paces. And, and I think gentrification is not a bad word. I think it's just, it's a process of change. And I, I think someone should make this film of, how do we encourage good gentrification rather than bad gentrification? You know, you see uh, many examples here in New York about great architecture, but it's it's uh, somewhat architecture for the rich in a sense because it's for the developers, it's for people who can afford to buy an apartment or rent an apartment, or for for companies and stuff like that. Have you seen any interesting examples of of uh, great architecture for? For affordable housing, sure. or, or sure. for that in in New York. Yeah, so there's a uh, project called Via, uh, which is out in um, I think it's in the Bronx. Pretty interesting, affordable housing with a lot of environmental issues. There's been a number of good competitions for libraries and uh, uh, police districts, uh, police buildings throughout all of New York that are coming. And so I think when you raise the architecture bar, it may it may start for places that have more money. But it starts to raise the bar everywhere and makes everyone start thinking about architecture and design. I mean, I think that's why Chicago is such a great architecture city. Like, you know, you go to Chicago, like, you get in a cab in New York, and I don't know, a cabbie, they talk about whatever, you know, not so much. You get in a cab in DC, they talk about politics. You get in a cab in Chicago, and they talk about architecture. I mean, like, <laughs> it's a city that is just, like, and, and it just, I think, it's just everywhere. And it's okay. not just in the, in the uh, wealthier areas, but it's throughout the whole city, I think. Hmm. And, uh, but what, why is that in Chicago? Why? why I mean, the, the, the skyscraper was born in Chicago. Yeah. Is that correct? The skyscraper was born. I think there's just a pride in the architecture, and there's been a lot of great architectures from the architects from there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know why, but there, there's got to be maybe because you know, in the fire in the 1890s and the World's Fair, that there was this rebirth of a lot of architecture that happened. You know, starting in the in the beginning of the nineteenth century, that came out. I don't, I don't know if that's the reason or not, mm -hmm. but it is just everywhere. And you know, they uh, people are proud of their architecture there. I guess that's what they're proud about. One of the things they're proud about, and uh, er, you know, everyone knows architecture there. When we did we a couple of years, we did the festival there. Yeah, it was always the best audience. I have to say, it was the most sophisticated architectural audience, and people came from all walks of life, and everyone had opinions, strong opinions, 
and sophisticated, more, I would say it was the most sophisticated architecture town uh, in America. I'm probably going to get shit for saying that. <laughs> yeah. After an art inside is Chicago next there. <laughs> Why don't you have a film festival there? So we, we did for a number of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it stopped. Oh, it just had a challenging time funding it. And so it's, it's one of these things that I don't have deep enough pockets just to fund these things. So we have to raise money to make it happen. And I just didn't have the connections. And, uh, but I'd like to bring it back that I keep thinking about it. It's a, it's a, it's a great architecture city. People who are, are listening to this uh, interview, they probably would say, so what would be you know, three films that I should really watch that have moved you in one way or the other? I'll give you a couple, a couple films that I think give the spectrum of what we have to offer. Uh, there was a film made called Unfinished Spaces. And it was a film about a project in Cuba. And it was actually designed right when Castro, right after Castro came to power, uh, about so a national arts built center made by a, two young filmmakers at the time. One was a filmmaker, one was an architect. Perfect combination for these kind of films. They spent about seven or eight years making it. And it is a film about these beautiful buildings that got made, that, but they didn't get finished. Castro, in about, 19, about 2000, decides he wants to have them finished and he brings back these architects who had left to come back and do it and so it talked about the political history of Cuba there's the kind of euphoria when Castro comes into power about we're going to change the world these young people who are like everything you know what we're going to they Castro and Che there's this classic picture of Castro and Che Guevara they're on the golf course with these guys who have the golf course and they're like we're going to take this land and we're going to make it into an art center which they do you know and there's this kind of irony to that and interesting and and so this film covers the design and making of these of these buildings with kind of then how Castro then goes into this phase of wanting to go more utilitarian and Soviet bloc kind of buildings and the kind of the kind of gray years of, of Cuba and then later and the film is so good that it played both at the Havana Film Festival to rave mm -hmm. and the Miami Film Festival to rave And so that's a tough nut to get with a film on Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, so Unfinished Spaces is, is, is really a beautiful film. Um, there's a film called Antwerp Central, which is about a train station in Antwerp. It's done with a little magical realism. It's a, talking about the history of this building. It was, there was a new camera, inexpensive camera called the Red, ca Red Camera, and it was, uh, it was a fairly high quality camera, but wasn't too expensive. And some filmmakers used that, and they uh, made this fantastic film just about the train station talked about the history, how it's used, talked about urban planning, where it was placed, how it, how it was, a, you know, influenced what happened there during World War II, and a new addition that was made to the building. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a beautiful film, a Belgian film. Um, I actually think the Bruce Mao film is going to be a classic film. And even though it's coming up right now, it is, you know, it's called Mao. And it talks about him as a human, talks about his design thinking. Smart, smartly made film, and you know you can either see it at the festival, or it will play. It will play forever. It's going to be. It's going to have a classic sense to it. I'm bad at picking favorites. I like them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Kyle, thank you so much for for being a guest here at uh, at our Art Insiders New York podcast, and thank you so much for your important work in directing the world's largest film festival, uh, celebrating the creative spirit that drives architecture and design, and your mission of educating, entertaining, and engaging your audience. Thank you so much for being here today, and uh, 
I hope to see you soon. I hope so too. Thanks, Anders. It was really fun. And I love your podcast. Congratulations. You. It was really great. Thank you, Kai. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design, and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.